0: launch and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. What's the first brand that had an impact on you as a young girl?
1: The brand that was most significant to me was The Gap. So I wasn't that young. I was probably in college at this point, but they had that Individuals of Style campaign and that campaign really resonated with me. And frankly, it's what started me on my career because it led to me putting together this mock-up, sending it to Mickey Drexler and him calling me and telling me that I should go into marketing. Wow. So definitely the gap in the 80s.
0: Hi, I'm Jim Stengel and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it. And the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today's guest on the CMO Podcast is my friend and fellow thought leader in brand purpose, Miriam Banakarum the new head of marketing at Nextdoor, the 12-year-old neighborhood app that helps people connect and share in more than 250,000 neighborhoods in 10 countries. Miriam has an incredible life story, from leaving Iran with her parents as a young girl to later attending Columbia University for undergraduate and business school, and then launching her most amazing career. She's held leadership positions at Univision and NBC Universal. Miriam was the first ever CMO at Gannett, which publishes the USA Today, and was the global CMO at Hyatt before becoming head of marketing at Nextdoor in early 2020. This is my conversation with Miriam Van Miriam, welcome to the CMO podcast. You're a three-time CMO. It's about time you're on this podcast. And my first question to you, beyond welcome, is do you remember when we first met?
1: I'm going to ask that question to you because, I mean, I, of course, had seen you speak at um, multiple A conferences in Orlando at the many gigantic hotels we used to all frequent. And um, I remember speaking to you on the bus on an excursion on our way to the beach outing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's my memory. I don't know. Does that match up with yours?
0: Yeah, that matches with mine. And that I actually uh, ran the race on the beach at that A meeting and I hurt my knee because of the slope and the beach. I ended up having knee surgery after that meeting. Isn't that weird? But anyway, I don't remember you that way. And another fond memory I have of of you is when you were at Gannett, which of course is the publisher of the USA Today, you held this rooftop reception for big advertisers at the Cannes Festival. And I used to bring my daughter who was in high school with me so I could get her perspective on the work in the industry. And she loved your party because of the macaroons. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes, the good days when we were on the rooftop in Kim.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, they're, maybe they're coming back. We'll see. But this is the next best thing. Listen, um, you're six months into this new role as CMO of Nextdoor, and you, jo- you started your job just sort of as the pandemic was sweeping the world. So I'd like you to tell us about your last six months, including why you jumped from being an executive in residence at the great Columbia University to jump into this really interesting and I suspect demanding role.
1: Yeah. Okay. That's a good place That's to start. That's a big question to start B- with. B- big question, big question as always, Jim. You always are good with the big questions. Um, so let's start with why I took the role. So I left as global CMO of Hyatt and decided to take some time off, as you know. Um, and i really just took three months off completely and somebody gave me great advice to actually treat it like garden leave and do different things which led me to write some things and then actually get a piece published in the new york times which i could never have imagined and i began to sort of put together a portfolio life is what i call it right because i think of life in terms of choices and chapters and when you leave a big job, people are always very confused by that because I don't think our society's um, very accepting of sort of nonlinear career paths. But I really sort of felt like I needed to catch my breath and really regain my sense of curiosity. And so um, being an executive in residence at Columbia, joining a couple boards, doing um, some speaking, it really allowed me to sort of rediscover things, um, to meet people like the guy who was doing blood drops in Africa, or the guy who was creating prosthetic arms, like just learning new things about what was happening in the world. I also agreed to chair Reporters Without Borders. I care deeply about press freedom. So I got to spend a lot of time sort of on that topic. And, you know, I think it really matters to allow your brain to expand in spaces that you're not like deep in on a regular basis when you're, you know, busy managing a family and your work, right? So I wasn't really sure I would go back. And, you know, that made some people very confused. You know, I remember somebody calling me and telling me that that was really brave. And frankly, it was quite privileged to be able to not go back into a day job. Um, And, you know, I wasn't really looking for a job. So when people call me asking me for advice on how to go look for a job, I'm not particularly helpful in that way. But what would happen is occasionally somebody would call and you would entertain a conversation and they would say, what are you looking for? And I do love operating. Um, And I would say, you know, it has to be something I deeply believe in because I really am a big believer in purpose driven organizations. I have to believe in the, you know, my peer set, like who I get to work with. I have to actually respect them. I have to feel like I can learn something new because I really am motivated by sort of curiosity. And I have to feel like I can bring something to the table. And those seem like very general things. But Jim, as you know, it's hard to find those four things together in, in many roles, particularly as you get more senior, right? And so um, when I got, I actually was at a Fast Company Impact Council dinner and I sat next to Jana Rich and she said, would you consider this role? And I was like, I'm not relocating. I've relocated once for the Hyatt job and I'm pretty set in my ways in terms of living in New York. She said, well, you know, the job could be based in, um, in New York. And so that's how I engaged in the conversation. And honestly, the process itself um, was really reconfirming of why it was the right decision to actually engage in that conversation. And frankly, I do inherently believe in sort of caring about your community and the community being sort of the neighborhood being the unit of change. And as you'll hear me say, I'm sure um, I inherently believe in getting involved. So, you know, all those things sort of came together and. Here, here I am at next door, six months in.
0: Well, Tommy, me, you mentioned the New York times story. And I rent I wrote you a note after that was published. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about that story and your point of view in that piece?
1: Yeah. I mean, I remember, um, after taking time off, we actually, um, rented a place in Venice beach. I'd always sort of wanted to live by the beach and I don't know there's something therapeutic about water. And my, my grandmother was still alive. So it was an opportunity to spend some time with her. And I was, um, Sitting in the backyard and a friend called and she was like, What's the next thing you're gonna do? And I was like, Well, there is no next thing. I actually am just trying to breathe. And she was like, Oh, that's so brave. And I, I was just so startled by that because we all know what that really meant. Um, and I just sort of sat down and wrote a piece. The New York Times had just announced that they were redoing one of their columns about points of transition. And I found myself just writing this piece and submitting it. Um, and then, you know, in November when I got the phone call saying, if you haven't sold the piece, we'd like to publish it. I honestly like almost fell out of my chair, but really the piece was about the fact that, you know, I really do think of life as choices and chapters, particularly as a working mom, like you make different choices in different chapters and they're always trade-offs, right? They're trade-offs between the things that you have to juggle. Cause by the way, you don't even have to be a parent in general, you're juggling in life. And I think for me, a lot of my journey has been about really sharing how complicated it is because particularly when I was coming up, you know, there was sort of a sense that you would look at leaders and that it all just seemed so well packaged and perfect and you never saw how complicated it was. And the truth is, we all knew it was complicated, um, you know, but there was sort of the sense of like, do I have to seem like that in order to succeed? And for me, there, I, that was just not who I was. And so I sort of always liked to share the mess because I sort of thought that made somebody else realize like they weren't in it alone. And so that was really what drove me to write the piece. And it was just about the fact that, um, you know, society was kind of complicated and they didn't really expect you to step off. And then the reactions you got, right? And and the number of times people would say, she's the former CMO of um, global CMO at Hyatt as if, you know, somehow I needed some title to mm-hmm. like place me. Um, and really like the journey was kind of a gift. And frankly, I don't think I would have been at this place if I hadn't taken that path, which uh, you know, I do have the ability to compartmentalize fear, but there were moments that were scary, right? In doing that, um, yeah, but, yeah. You know, we learn from each other.
0: I'm going to ask you later about the books you're reading now, but one <laughs> of the books I'm reading now, I'm trying to be, um, I'm trying to broaden my scope during Black Lives Matter to read different things. But one thing I'm reading, my family doctor recommended, is a book by Dan Harris, who's a reporter at ABC, called "10 percent Happier."
1: Oh, I know that book.
0: And it's about discovering meditation, a bit of a memoir, and. And it's good. And it's about being in the now. And, you know, I believe in that, but still we're always struggling with it, right? Because it's, yeah, it's hard. It is hard. It yeah. is very hard. So, but we're both working on it.
1: <laughs> That's correct. It's a journey. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So uh, I want you to talk a little bit about your startup. You, you know, you started a new company at a senior level from the outside, it's a really interesting company. It's, it was the pandemic. We began working remotely. So, how did you start up? You know, in a really weird time, how did you get to know your team, your colleagues, your clients, whatever it might be? Yeah. So what were the lessons and how you began?
1: So I started three weeks before work from home. My first week I spent in San Francisco, which was really very fortunate because I got to actually meet a lot of my colleagues out there. I spent the second week in Europe because I um, also oversee the global team. So I actually got to meet everybody there too. And then I spent my third week in New York. So I met that team, you know, because I was going to be based there. So I actually was fortunate that I had a touch point physically. Um, I covered a lot of ground in my first three weeks. And then we went to work from home. Um, And, you know, it's been difficult. Um, Frankly, you know, as you know, Jim, I've uh, had a lot of different jobs. So you're always like learning new things. And I think you always have to be incredibly respectful when you show up of the culture and sort of the things you don't know. Um, And so I was very focused on that. But I have to say, like joining a tech startup is a whole new level. I remember joking with my husband that I had to download like 10 apps on my phone just to function the first week. And, you know, um, at tech startups like Nextdoor, they actually have an incredible level of transparency, which when you work at really big corporations like the Hyatt (laughs) Hotels company is very different. So One of the first things I noticed is that we actually publish our board doc, which is a doc. It's like a 120 page word doc in Google Docs. We publish it so the entire company can see it. And by the way, it's not a PowerPoint or a keynote that gets shared with the board. It goes up and the board starts commenting real time into the board deck like 10 days before you actually even walk into the room. It's a very different experience, right? It's a much more... um, like just we're all in the weeds together in some kind of a way. So it's not this distant where you're presenting and it's sort of it's just it's a totally different world. So you have to learn these new things about a culture and adapt. And I think you have to now recognize that everybody's in a very different place. Um, you know, working from home, I think, has been so complicated um if you're single it's incredibly isolating if you have kids and you're having to actually homeschool them in the middle of the day it's complicated right there's just so many levels of complexity um and we're all learning and you know it, it at times it feels like it's endless because you can't see the end in sight right and so i think um it's been complicated but on the flip side i think like everyone's had to be much more authentic because you're literally seeing them with their children on their lap or We had a client meeting, which I won't forget, where the husband was walking behind the client like every five minutes in his workout gears and literally her hair was like on fire. And she was like, what is he doing? (laughs) So it brings you closer. I think it gets rid of the veneer that we all sort of had gotten used to, which I think is amazing. But, you know, we're all learning real time with each other.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of that, uh, I'm now podcasting from a historical home we're <laughs> renovating. So there's saws going and cement trucks. So I apologize to you and the listeners if something comes flying in the window or whatever might happen. But I want to ask you who have you been uh, staying in place with? Who has been, have, have you had any kids home or yeah, friends? Yeah.
1: So um, we, so when it first happened, so I had two kids in college, they both got sent home in March. So, you know, the idea of an empty nest was, no longer. And actually quite early on, a friend who was a single mom actually with a um, a two-year-old called, and she was actually having a very difficult time because there was so much unknown. And she actually came with her newborn and, well, she was like two. So they came and moved in with us for a period of six weeks because they just needed some support. And I remember I was on the call with a colleague, Jenny, in Australia, and I was like, you're going to have to just bear with me because I'm actually driving to Astoria to pick somebody up. So we'll be doing this call as I pick up this, you know, this, my friend Renat and her baby, who is at this point screaming, I was like, so hold on, I'll just put you on mute until I can get her to calm down. Cause she doesn't really know me. So um, yeah. So we, we had um, sort of a, a whole v- variety um, and really that's continued on. I mean, we're not after six weeks decided she sort of, her child needed her own space. And so she went back to Astoria, but you know, I still have the kids home and we're sort of experiencing what that's like.
0: Yeah. How nice to live with a two year old again. I would sort you of know enjoy what? It that. was
1: amazing. It was amazing because I remember thinking, like, it's just hopeful. People were like, that just seems crazy that you would do that. I was like, no, it's actually really joyful to remember, like, there's a future, right? You see the baby and you think, like, the whole world is in front of her.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Listen, I want to go back to your job here for a moment. You are, you're working, you know, there's some new LinkedIn research. I don't know if you've seen this yet about the C suite relationships with the CMO and other functions and the one they highlights the CFO it's the most troubled relationship the data suggests with the CMO you join Nextdoor and your CEO is a former CFO That's correct So so how you know how are you building a strong rapport relationship with your CEO which is so important as a as a CMO or head of marketing what are your lessons in that you've done this in other companies of course but how do you make sure that you're on the same page And you have a great trusting relationship with your CEO, and especially when the background is in finance.
1: Yeah. Um, So, you know, it's interesting. When I was at Gannett, um, a few months into my time there, the COO who had been the CFO moved into the CEO role. So Gratia Martori also had been a CFO who became a CEO. So this will be my second time with that. Um, And I thought it was actually really interesting because I connected um, Sarah and Gracia to each other when we were considering my taking this role because I thought that was good perspective for Sarah as well. Um, Listen, I think that in the end, it always matters to understand how the business functions, right? So for me, I consider myself a general manager who uses marketing um, skills to get her job done. But if you actually have that lens, I think it's actually about what the business outcome is, right? And if you can actually think about your job in that context, I don't think that's actually a difficult relationship. For me, it's always been about a partnership. And, you know, it's not about doing ads or, you know, digital campaigns for the sake of the digital campaigns. It's about what are we trying to actually accomplish as a business and how can what I do ladder into that? Um, you know, I remember for a while in the industry, there was a discussion about, um revenue and should CMOs think about revenue? I was like, well, yeah, because we're not nonprofits. So if you're not focused on the revenue, if you're just considering yourself an expense line, that's never a good idea. So I think if you can pull back the lens and really understand what they're trying to solve, right, and trying to meet that need um, using your skills, like it's really a team effort, right? And I think um, I, I will say one of the things about having a boss who is a CFO is that you know, she's amazing with numbers. I used to say this about Gracia, like when she would talk about numbers, her eyes would dance, right? Um, I do that when I talk about purpose. And so it actually was a great partnership. Once you get to trust, you actually are solving different things. And yet, um, right, we all know that actually different minds looking at the same problem can be a good thing. And I think that that's sort of how I think about
0: it. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website. And then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So, what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. So I want you to talk about your work. Our listeners are always interested in what senior people do and what CMOs do. So let's demystify it. What is your work as the head of marketing for this really interesting app, this phenomenon? And how is it different? From Hyatt and Gannett.
1: Well, so the thing that's interesting about Nextdoor, right, for me, the reason purpose matters is like, why did the company begin and what's the difference they want to make in the world? I know, Jim, you and I share our love of purpose. Really, it's about the North Star, right? And I think when I look back at the history of Nextdoor There was an article that Charles Blow writes in 2010 about uh, how as we become more connected, we become more disconnected. And he talks about a Pew study that talks about how 28% of Americans don't know a single neighbor. And I think that was really the premise that started Nextdoor, right? And then they discovered bowling alone and this idea of us becoming more modern as a society and more um, isolated. So they thought, okay, how can we actually leverage society to solve this problem? And so the idea of Nextdoor was really based on the premise that by leveraging technology, you could connect people online, but really to get them connected offline. So it was really based on the notion of community and neighborhoods as the unit of change. And so my job is really to tell that story. So it was actually kind of fascinating. In my first week, you know, as I was getting um, to know the company and the people, I discovered the Charles Blow story. And I had actually just heard Charles Blow when I was in Chicago speak at actually at the kids' school. And I read his book and had found And for the listeners here, who like,
0: don't know him, he's a he's a great columnist for the yeah, New York Times. Yeah, for the New York yeah. Times.
1: Super interesting, right? Yeah. And so I was like, has anybody reached out to Charles Blow? Does he know that that article was actually the founding story of the company? And nobody had ever reached out to him. So for me, a lot of my job as a CMO is, I consider myself a storyteller, right? So my job is to figure out, how do I tell the story of Nextdoor using all the tools that we have? Um, and it's really about the narrative, right? And so if you have a purpose, but that narrative is actually incredibly authentic, and so you can sort of use that as a through line of the story that you're trying to tell to your various constituencies, internally, externally, you know, to the street, whatever it is that you're trying to manage. So, I mean, you know, I tell people all the time, like they say, what's your superpower? And my superpower really isn't storytelling, right? It's about being able to pull back and say, okay, what is it I'm trying to solve? And how do I actually tell the story in a way that it lands? I tell my children all the time, communication isn't in how good you think you're doing. It's in in whether they actually get the message. (laughs) So if you think of it in that way, that's really what, um, as a CMO you're trying to solve. Cause if somebody doesn't understand your story, they can't buy your product. They can't actually engage with you. They don't yeah. know how to actually participate in the equation.
0: Did you grow up in a neighborhood where you knew your neighbors? I sure did.
1: I did. I mean, I remember I grew up originally in Iran where you were connected to everybody. Yeah. And then even when we moved um, to the States, you know, we moved to the suburbs and, you know, it's a crazy story, but my parents who were like a banker and a TV strategist decided to open up a bakery. And what I remember is uh, <laughs> there's just so many levels of crazy, but they had this French bakery <laughs> in this like lily white suburb of San Francisco called Lafayette. And, um, what I remember when I made cappuccinos behind the counter and served croissants was, um, like what an energy source it was, right. To actually talk to people and know what was going on. It was like a hub. Right. And so, for me, I always had this fantasy of opening up a restaurant or having a coffee shop because I remember so vividly that being an energy source of like not just an exchange of goods, but an exchange of like connections. Right? People made friends mm. in the coffee shop, um, and I, and I think about that often actually um, now that I'm at Next Door.
0: Yeah. What are your secrets to a great cappuccino?
1: You know, it's so funny. Um, I, I think it's all about the froth. Like, how do you froth I that? The 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 whole thing. I mean, actually, I was at a I was in an event um, where somebody was also teaching me that you have to heat the cup before you pour so that you're not pour hmm. you know, to keep it warmer. Uh, I think it was um, Erwin Gottlieb was teaching that to me the other <laughs> yeah. at an event. <laughs> He's very Irwin, good
0: at that. Yeah, Erwin, <laughs> previously at WPP and one of the I mean, one of the amazing piece, people in media of the last 50 years, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, so yeah. If you ever run into Erwin, I would say ask him his cappuccino secrets because he clearly knew it better than me.
0: The most amazing thing I learned about Irwin was, I know, I was having a meeting with him when I was back at PNG and he was wiring his own house.
1: Of course I mean, he who was. Does,
0: who does that? <laughs>
1: <laughs> anyway,
0: um, I'm going to back up a little bit more on your life and career in a moment. But before I do that, I want to talk a bit more about Nextdoor because I think it's so interesting. You know, many others have tried to scale a local platform. I, I was on the board of AOL when we purchased Patch. And actually, I still use Patch and I also use Nextdoor, but it didn't work. It was a colossal mm-hmm. failure. So how are you doing, doing things differently to make it work? What could others learn? I mean, you know, you're not the first mover in this space, yeah. but you seem to be really getting traction with the business model that works. So what is it about you that's different?
1: So, I think the thing, and you know, Jim, in my early career, I was at City Search, right, and you know Gannett mm-hmm. was really a local company besides u s a today so I think we all recognize that hyper local matters um I think a lot of times, particularly in the media business, you know where I spend a lot of my time, we come at it from the news lens, and you know that's a complicated thing, and we know the n- news organizations have been under pressure for a long time now, particularly local news organizations. With Nextdoor, we're really a community platform, right? So we're trying to enable communities um, from the ground up. And so I think of us as, um, you know, it's about the whole neighborhood and the neighborhood ecosystem. It's about the members. So like Nathaniel and Troy, who live down the street from me in Chelsea, um, LaBergamo, Joe's Coffee Shop, the big brands, right? The Home Depot that's in my neighborhood, the public agencies. It's about like figuring out how to enable that local ecosystem to come together. Um, We don't actually take political advertising. We're really not about that. And a really good analogy is like, you know, it's like coming to my house for dinner. Everybody can disagree. But, you know, if you dump the bottle on somebody's head, you're going to be asked to leave because it's a community platform and we have community guidelines. And it's also about the vibrancy and sort of the social capital of a neighborhood. Um, And that's really what we're focused on, which was quite different than what Patch was trying to do or City Search or some of the other efforts around local. And I think... Again, it's really about utility. So people come to the platform because, um, well, so here are the key things about Nextdoor, right? It's about proximity because you basically log on and you see your community. You don't see Marin. If I'm in Chelsea, I see sort of Greenwich Village and and Chelsea, but I'm not seeing other neighborhoods, and. Um, I don't like pick and choose my friends. I'm not opting in and out. I'm literally, I have access to all the people who sign in from my community. So the premise is I moved to neighborhood because of the people who live there and the vibrancy and the businesses, and I'm now getting connected in. So a small business that comes on the platform, um, you know, because we've just been launching a lot of different things for small businesses on the platform, you know, and people say, well, why should I get onto Nextdoor? Well, because you get instant distribution into the community. You don't actually have to go build your followership, right? And mm-hmm. the neighbor and the neighbors want to know what's going on with the local businesses on their platform. For the public agencies, they are trying to get hyper local information Right if you're con Ed and you're trying to turn off something in a few blocks you're not trying to get that you know message out nationally or even in broad strokes you're trying to get to those few blocks so that you're not actually creating noise for other people. So I think it's the it's the entire ecosystem that's what's interesting about Nextdoor that's different but it also relies on us having partnerships with the entire community, right? So we're not just solving for one one neighbor, we're actually bringing the entire ecosystem together. Um I think of us as an enabler, right? Whereas I think at Patch or at City Search, we were, or some of the news organizations, you're focused on delivering information, right? So it's sort of just a different model. Um, And I think for advertisers, it's been an interesting thing because like, if I think of Walmart, they came on the platform in an incredibly interesting way recently. Like for them, we had turned, you know, as COVID hit, the first meet, you know, the first need we were trying to meet was like getting you um, hyper-local relevant information, CDC, World Health Organization, you know, the Catalan government in Spain, the NHS in the UK. And then people started immediately actually wanting to help each other. Like if there's a silver lining, I have to say like this desire to help showed up pretty quickly. I would say like almost in the second week of the pandemic where people were like, I'm able-bodied and I can run groceries, I can pick up prescriptions for people. And the team like was able to pivot and start creating these products like in record time to meet that need. And I think that's where, if you're a purpose-driven organization that's authentic, like people begin to live their purpose, or are just like super motivated by that. So we created a functionality for people to be able to join groups. And also then they took a map that used to be for trick-or-treating where you could pin your house so the people would know to come trick-or-treating and they actually turned it into, into help map. So you could mm. pin yourself in your neighborhood to say, oh, you know what? This person needs help and I'm the closest person to them. So it was like a visual exercise. And then Walmart sort of showed up and they were trying to get hyper-local information about their store hours, You know, all the different changes that were happening. They actually started these groups. So you could say, I'm going to Walmart. You could see if somebody was close to you and you could be like, I'm happy to do that run for you. So it enabled them to get really hyper-local information to their customers, but it also reduced foot traffic in their stores, which was better for them in terms of um, you know, their employee base, and also it still kept the basket sizes up, right, because people were shopping not just for themselves but for multiple people. That kind of creative like wonderful partnership solution. Yeah. was super interesting to see um and I think in that sense, like you have to be utility, and then you also have to try and norm behavior on the platform to make sure that you know when people want to help each other, who doesn't want to enable that?
0: yeah, um, yeah. you've been sharing wonderful things that are happening on the platform do you have a fa- do you have a favorite? consumer story user story on the platform
1: well i mean probably i mean honestly there's so many we collect yeah. them on a regular basis um you know i think i'll uh, probably one of my favorite stories is a gentleman actually um who was afraid to you know after all the civil unrest he was afraid to sort of um walk home alone from work and he posted on the platform and this has now been covered by people magazine and a lot of the um uh, you know, the Today Show and, and whatnot. And he basically posted and the number of people who volunteer to walk with him, like 50 people showed up. So I think the thing that, you, you know, the, the stories that resonate with me, some of them are like, oh, they wanted to have a wedding and they got their whole neighborhood to help them have the wedding. I mean, they're obviously big stories, but it's really the little stories, mm-hmm. right? Because um, not everybody's going to be donating a car, right? It's not it's not like the Oprah show where that, where that happens all the time. So I think yes, you see these big stories where big things happen, but really the things that are heartwarming are the little stories. Somebody was telling me a story in Australia where, um, actually, we got a reach out from one of the Wiggles. You yeah, remember the Wiggles? So Greg from the Wiggles, he was the yellow shirt. <laughs> Him, he—they reached out because one of their, um, one of his partners, his mom was looking for some medicine that was hard to find, and he discovered next door, and he posted, and like eight people offered to drop off that medicine by the evening. And he said his mother was very confused. He said, like, is that a black market? And they would literally like, we'll just drop it off free. Like, you can just have it. And I think it's those stories that are heartwarming because, um, you know, when people ask for, for help, like, it really opens up the opportunity for people to give back. And you see that come up in spades. And I think that's really heartwarming. Um, We also have a lot of stories where businesses who've been suffering, well, people will turn to them and figure out how to, you know, send bagels to the hospital workers. And then, oh, there was another amazing story where there was a gentleman who's, um, whose spouse was in need of medical attention and people offered to you know create a GoFundMe campaign. And he wasn't interested in that because he felt like that was a handout. And so somebody posted on Nextdoor and literally people would show up at six in the morning, they'd buy out the store. And so basically he'd make his number and then he could just go to the hospital. Aww. Like, so it's those kinds of stories that are incredibly, incredibly heartwarming right? Where people come together and sort of organize um, to help each other, right? And so wh- whatever they were doing with the donuts that they were buying, they, they were so making positive. sure to get there early. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. So
0: kind, so gentle. We need this podcast in this time. So Mariam, thank do. you for we joining do. us. These stories are wonderful. Hey, one one other big kind of macro question about um, Nextdoor and platforms, you know, in general. You know, your your company is a large local platform. And you've had some issues with content moderation as others have as well that have been covered well, Facebook, et cetera. You've been all, you have been on all sides of this. Mm-hmm. You know, you're at a publisher with Gannett. You're at a consumer business the business brand with Hyatt. And now you're at Nextdoor. What is your counsel to people running brands to navigate through this you have such an interesting window on this really tricky topic. We're yeah, all learning, I mean, right?
1: I think we're we're all learning. We're all learning, and we all know we can do better. Um, I think the main thing is you have to have the bravery to know what you don't know, to be open about the journey, and to be willing to just be honest and ask for help, and also to hold yourself accountable. You know, it's funny when I um, took some time off. I actually, was asked to come and talk on diversity and inclusion to a big company, and so I spent a lot of time just sort of spending. Um, time understanding what had happened in a lot of the companies, Jim, you know, we we sit in a lot of executive seats where there's not a ton of diversity. Mm-hmm. And so the question is like, there's been all this effort and yet not a ton of progress, right? And so I think we have to really acknowledge that and understand what is really the barrier and how can you, re- you know, one of the things I love about um, technology companies is they love numbers. And the question is, What's the number you're going to actually commit to to actually make a difference, right? Because we know the things that move are the things that get measured um and I think it's not it's about actually being willing to be open about the fact that we're not perfect. I mean, I think RCO did a really nice job of actually doing a blog post to all our neighbors and acknowledge the fact that we had work to be done and that there were people who didn't feel welcome on our platform and that's not what our values are about and we're committed to doing the work and holding ourselves accountable and reporting back on that on a regular basis. The only way is to go through. You're not going around that. And I don't think it's about um pretty pictures or sort of big statements. It's actually about the work, right? And I think for us, we made the statement and we really doubled down internally to actually get to the work. And we're more focused on that than anything else. Um, and by the way, it's going to be a journey. It's There is no quick fix, right? But you have to be committed. And I think for me, the thing that was amazingly, um, you know, you sort of get to know your organization when you join it. Was how everybody held hands and everybody believed, right? And and that's really what it takes. It takes everybody being committed um, to the path that ha- ahead of, for all of us.
0: We've talked about brand purpose you know, generally in the first thirty minutes of this podcast. How has your purpose at Nextdoor helped you navigate this?
1: Well, I I think I always come back to that. You know, I think about purpose as a filter through which you make decisions. I remember when I was at Hyatt, our purpose was around caring for you to be your best, and. People were initially very confused by that because they were like, what's the difference between care and service? They seem like the same thing. And our CEO, Mark Hoplamazian, used to say, empathy plus action equals care. I see you and I actually am willing to do something about it. And so that's how you move forward. And so I say to people all the time, like purpose is about how you make a decision at an organization. It is not about your marketing tagline, right? It's about your North Star. And so you have to look at business decisions through that filter to figure out, what the right answer for you is. Because as we're experiencing now in times of chaos, which I will say we all are now living in, it can be really easy to just constantly be zigging and zagging, responding to things that are coming at you. Um, So I remember there was a time at Hyatt where we were looking at a deal with a franchisee and they were not offering health insurance to their employees. And we, we sort of sat around the table and said, if our purpose is caring for you to be your best, are we gonna take this deal? And I think it's in those moments where you walk away from money or you're willing to walk away from money uh, that you actually really know, are you, in fact, a purpose driven company or is it just a, you know, a nice line on a laminated card that people carry around in their wallets?
0: Yeah. As we look forward on brand purpose, you know, what do you think our greatest challenges are, Miriam? I mean, we're we're trying, you know, we, we try to find our purpose or rediscover it, bring it to life, measure it, which I think there's opportunities what do you think is the next, what's purpose
1: 3.0? Well, Jim, you know, the the amazing thing is, um, you know, there's more of us now than when we started on this mm-hmm. journey, you and I. Um, and I think part of it is, you know, purpose became popular, like all things. They it sort of like becomes in fashion. Um, and and I think it's about more than that, right? I mean, it's really about authenticity of purpose. And for a while, in in fact, when I took my time off, I got to write a chapter on um for Nina Montgomery, who did a book called Perspectives on Purpose, I think it really matters to understand what purpose is. Um, A lot of people think it's their CSR strategy. A lot of people equate it with their marketing. And I think I really go back to Jim Collins's work about like it being the North Star of an organization and sort of this broader lens through which you can make decisions. And it's about your strategy. So I think, um, look, I think consumers are going to demand more of companies. We're already seeing that. So I think um, the reason it's come into such fashion is because um, the system is asking us to be more accountable to things like that. Right. If you think about sort of society as a system, like I think there's just more demand for people to know who they're buying from. They want to they want to understand. And there's like big issues now. And so that's why you're seeing CEOs step into things that 10 years ago you couldn't have imagined them stepping into. Um I think that what's happening in the world globally is asking more of all of us. And I think frankly, um a lot of business leaders have the capacity to do that kind of work.
0: Yeah. Is your is your purpose at Nextdoor in your KPIs?
1: Oh yes. A hundred percent. Uh you know, Jim, I know you measure this. I know, um you know, Jim Collins, who is definitely a numbers person, you know, measured this. I, you have to be able to quantify it, right? Because otherwise it's hard for people to actually focus on it. Um, and 100% it's in our KPIs.
0: Yeah, perfect. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, Story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. I want to go to the lightning round because it's going to be so good with you. So we're going to end this with uh, just a bunch of interesting and silly questions to get to know you better and and to hear your point of view. What was your first impression when you moved to the States as a young girl?
1: Um, What was my first impression? You know, I was I, it was like I was a sociologist or an anthropologist. I was clocking, I was I was looking for patterns, right? Cuz I remember showing up at junior high in my French girl clothes, like a little poofy skirt, lace-up, you know, ballet shoes, and everybody was wearing Calvin Klein jeans and Izod's, and I so did not fit in, and you know, in junior high all you care about is fitting in. I remember by the time that day ended, I said to my dad I need to go to the mall immediately, and I, you know, got the new outfit. Um Those are skills, by the way, that, as a marketer, come in handy all the time right because you're reading what's happening you're, you're It's like being a trend watcher, except mm-hmm. it's a survival mechanism um that that's what I really remember right it was very it's it's a much more casual culture than in um like the Middle East or Europe right because people were wearing jeans and sneakers, and you know I, I had on much more of like a you know paris schoolgirl outfit
0: yeah, the most important mentor in your life
1: the most important mentor in my life. Honestly, in some ways, I have to go back to my great gran- to my grandmother, um, who was sort of like the energizer bunny. And, you know, she passed away actually recently, but she never stopped. She never, ever stopped. Right. Um, she she was a teacher. Um, she, you know, cooked. She sewed clothes. She was incredibly social. I remember when she came to live with us in California. Um, even though she was well past the age of wanting to drive, she insisted on driving. She would take English as a second language at the church. I mean, you'd be like, you speak five languages. You don't need that. And it just, she never stopped, right? So I think she was just a built-in role model for me because she was just an incredible, and we always joke, she was the energizer bunny. And when people would meet mama and they would be like, she's just like you, or you're just like her. And, um, you know, she just was a s incredible source of energy and she never limited you. So I think- um, probably close to home. I mean, and of course I've had many, um, people who've been my mentors who I've worked with, um, throughout my career as well. Um, you know, Gracia Martori, Jerry Parencio, Ray Rodriguez. I mean, there's so many, frankly, um, too, too, too many to name.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you sound a lot like your grandmother.
1: Uh, that's what I'm told. And I have to say, I'm, I take that as an immense, immense compliment because she was, you know, she, I, I loved her immensely.
0: Yeah. So what are you reading now? What books, magazines, anything?
1: Let's see. So you know what? So the most interesting thing is that I actually haven't been able to pick up a book in the last six months because there's like literally no room to do that. So what I've been doing is um, listening. Well, I do. I do read a lot of um, news. Right. I do read The Atlantic. I, of course, read Adweek. And so I don't count those because I think you're looking for books, Jim. Um, I did. It's all it's all helpful. Okay, so I so I do consume a lot of like, you know, The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Guardian. People always say to me, like, you're reading The Guardian, and I like reading news from outside of the U.S. because I think it's important to get different perspectives. Um, I think The Atlantic has been doing amazing amounts of coverage. I think Time has done great things. So um, I also read a lot of the stuff the various consulting companies put out. BCG McKinsey has been doing a lot of publishing of information, and I think that's it's just a great way to understand sort of on a macro level what's going on. Um, you know, the other thing is that... Um, to your point, I spent a lot of time at Columbia, and so the other day I actually had a reunion with some of my classmates. One was in Dubai, one was in Hong Kong, one was in London. Right, so like I'm, I like to talk to people um, in my network in other places and actually hear real time what they're experiencing. Um, so it's not just about the actual news sources of which I do consume an immense amount. Um, it's also about actually talking to real people in places so that you get the human story behind things because you know sometimes. Um, it's important to actually, it's like being in a focus group. It's, it's good to actually hear it directly.
0: Are you a podcast person?
1: I am a podcast person. I'm also an incredible consumer of Netflix and Hulu and Peacock and, you know, um, I, I take in a lot of content, Jim. So I have to say, one of the things I keep telling my team that I'm going to keep sending them Um, is all the shows I've been watching I actually created like an Excel spreadsheet to keep track because I actually can't remember what I've consumed because I've been watching so much stuff. I've been um, rewatching Grey's Anatomy and Glee because I think we all actually need to have some escapism (laughs) given the backdrop that we're all living in. I find I take less um, procedural dramas in because I can't deal with the stress. So, you know, um, a lot of documentaries I think the Innocence Project has been doing some amazing Netflix specials and series that are really great to watch. Um, I also find a lot of content through my college kids who, um, you know. Yeah, me too. Just constantly teach
0: me. I've just watched Hamilton, though. I I never saw it on stage, you Uh know, but I've just watched it three times.
1: Oh, yeah. So, you know. I was um, I'd taken the job in Chicago. Um, I was in Chicago, but my family was still here and we were members of the public. And my husband once said to me, we should just go see it because we actually had a subscription. So we saw it before it went to Broadway and it was mind blowing, mind blowing. It still is still is
0: now the biggest change or shift in your life during, since the pandemic that you want to keep in your life after the pandemic passes us someday.
1: I go for early morning walks. And so, um, you know what I've been noticing is like the foliage, the trees, the flowers. (laughs) I mean, I just think we're all becoming much more conscious of like the physical space around us in a way that I think we used to pass through it. And interestingly, we actually just did some focus groups and some Quan and Qual actually um, with some of our members. And what you're hearing is consumers getting more physically connected and the desire to be grounded. Like this notion of being plugged in, like the words they're using is much more um like focused on the earth. I think like this desire to be connected um, in this like very physical way has come into light. And I think we're going to see that. In, I mean, I hope to keep it. And I think we're going to see that as we come out of the pandemic, hopefully soon.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I started taking walks as well, which I haven't done ever. I took a walk this morning before talking with you. Almost
1: is. every day. Almost yeah. every day.
0: Yeah, I, I, I try to do the same. It's really good. So second to the last question, will we ever meet again in Cannes?
1: I hope so. I'm counting on it. And a rooftop with a glass of rosé. And
0: those macaroons.
1: <laughs> and those macaroons.
0: <laughs> All right. So last question. This has been so wonderful. Who would you like to listen to in the CMO podcast? Who would be really interesting and helpful for you?
1: Um, let's see. You know, I love purpose-driven companies and so I would love to hear um you know what some of the really big companies are grappling with and how they're finding their way through. I had a really interesting conversation with the CMO of Burger King and I think he would be good on your podcast.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cuz they've sure. had
1: a really interesting journey and by the way they have a very diverse consumer base, right? So super interesting cuz he's he went from Unilever to um mm-hmm. to um Burger King, right? And so yeah, super right. interesting right. as a comparison Fernando. point, Fernando. And also like he's Brazilian. I find people who come from the outside see things differently. Yeah. Uh, and I think particularly given the civil unrest, he has a lot of interesting things to share.
0: I think we should we had him on very early, by the way, one of my first oh. podcasts. But that was a long time ago. So having him on now with what they're You should bring with, him back. Yeah, I think that's a really great idea. And I should tell you, we I, I interviewed Vinit Mera at Walgreens Boots recently. Oh, yeah. And and he, he's just an amazing purpose-driven leader. He talked about next door, by the way, well, on the podcast.
1: You know what? I knew that. I actually knew that.
0: Yeah, I mean, he just one of the macro trends that yeah. he thinks is going to stick.
1: So, well, I and, do think proximity is going to matter. Like we're we're going to yeah. be more connected to the people who live close by us. Um you know, it's funny, but right before I um, started this job, I had lunch with Sebastian Unger. Like, so I, because of my Reporters that Borders work, I got um, connected to him at lunch. And he wrote this really interesting book that's worth reading called Tribe, which talks about how early tribes were all basically established by geography and how times of pandemics actually, you know, because he writes a lot about wars, bring people closer together. And I think it's a, re- so if I was going to recommend a book, I would say that's a great book to read now because he looks at it through the lens of a journalist. But it's very actually true in terms of what's happening to all of us today.
0: All right. Well, I'll turn the microphone to you. You have one last question, if you have one for me, and if you don't,
1: I, I want to will... know what, what what's the piece of advice you're going to give me. I'm t- I'm turning the tables on you,
0: <laughs> Miriam. Keep being yourself. It works. <laughs> <laughs> it works. You you are uh, true to yourself, and you're uh, you've always been a bright light in our industry, and you continue to be. So I hope we see each other again in person. Keep being yourself, and, and by the way, you know, keep keep uh, stretching next door, which I'm sure you're doing with your team. Yeah, you yeah. you do play an amazing role, uh, and and I think it's it's so helpful, and it's shining a light in the generosity and the kindness of human beings. And we need more of that. It's not where it needs to be. And I think you can be a catalyst for that. So it's a perfect match for who you are as a person. So keep at it. And it's been so, so, so nice connecting with you again. I love this podcast and our listeners will too.
1: Thank you so much for having me. And I'll buy the rosé when I see you. I'll buy you the first drink. How about that?
0: It's a deal. And then we'll have a good (laughs) cappuccino.
1: That's correct. We'll We'll find a cappuccino.
0: That was my conversation with Miriam. I loved everything about this one, but I especially, I just love her energy. I love how she thinks about career paths and her career path. And I love her role model as her grandmother and how she spoke about how her grandmother lived her life and how Miriam looks to emulate that. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.